Hi, my name is Angela. I'll be doing the Bible reading. It's from Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the rock of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Um, friends, let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at his word together. Father, I thank you that you have spoken uh, in your son to your world. Thank you that you have uh, brought people to know yourself. And Father, we thank you mostly though that, uh, that you have given us scripture so that we might know your son. And we pray today that as we look at the scriptures together, you'd help us understand them. And understanding them, Father, we pray that you'd help us to obey them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this series of talks by telling you a bit about my wife and myself. I've told you a bit already, but let me tell you some more. Uh, my wife's name is Heather. Heather and I met each other when we were about 20 years old. Um, at first, we liked each other but didn't see anything special. Then over a six-month period, and in fact, when we went away from Beach Mission where we met each other, we didn't even exchange phone numbers or any of those sorts of things. We were just really not that interested. But then when I was walking home from college on the very first week of college, this figure walks out in front of me. I recognise it to be Heather. Then I catch up to her and I ask her a bit about what she's doing. find out she lives with another three women. Well, for a 20-year-old man, that was very attractive. <laughs> so I started visiting that household, and then after a six-month period, we actually decided we might like each other after all. And uh, we began to fall in love with each other, and eventually we decided that we would like to spend the rest of our lives together. Also, so then, in other words, we decided we would get married. And uh, it took us three years from the time we met to the time we married. Uh, and now, as you know, marriage in Australia is much the same as marriage anywhere else in the world. Um, generally, you, you get together with a bunch of friends and relatives, and sometime during the day there are some formal things that get done. In our case, we did a variety of things. For example, we heard an example, uh, an explanation of what marriage is all about from the pastor of the church. We were asked if there were any reasons why we couldn't get married or shouldn't get married. Uh, and, and we said no, there were no reasons that we could find of, and no one else in the congregation saw any reason either, so that was good. I was then asked if I would have Heather as my wife and be loyal to her all of my life, and she was asked if she would have me as her husband and be loyal to me all of her life. Finally, we gave each other a ring, I've still got mine on, as a symbol of our marriage and the vows we made. Then we heard from God about what he expected in marriage um, as a friend explained the scriptures to us in church. Now what we, oh, and we sought God's blessing in prayer, of course. 
And finally, we signed some pieces of paper which we did for the government in the presence of witnesses so that everyone could say, yes, they are now married. Now, what we did is a sort of agreement or a contract with each other. And that's what marriage is. Uh, it's a public agreement or contract. Now, why am I telling you what you already know? That which is obvious. I'm telling you because what we did on that day when we married each other is sort of like covenants in the Bible. And there are lots of covenants in the Bible. A covenant is a contract that is entered into by various people in the Bible at various times. Sometimes covenants are made between a person and a person, like we did. Sometimes they're made between nation and nation, as often happened in the ancient world. And sometimes they're made between God and a nation. And the book of Malachi is all about that. Right, so there's my summary of the book of Malachi. It's talking about a relationship formed, a covenant formed, between God and his people. So to understand the book of Malachi, you need to understand the idea and the history of covenants made by God with people throughout the Old Testament. So we're going to have to talk about covenants in order to understand this book. So I'm telling you that up front so that we can get it done. Um, but before we look at Malachi in detail, let me just do some background with you. You see, if you're studying any prophetic book in the Bible, what do you need to do? Well, you need to know a bit about the history of the time. You need to understand where it occurs. This event occurs in the history of God with his people. So, have a look at the outlines that I've given you, and you'll find a timeline of Israel's history. I hope that is true. If not, I will put it up later on. It is there. Good. This, is, this tells you where we are in the history of the Bible so far. You can see where our timeline starts. It starts with God creating the world. Uh, he creates the universe, this world we live in, all living creatures, all humans, and he does so with a purpose in mind. And that purpose is this, that the humans that he has created live in right relationship with him, with each other, and the environment he has put them in. That's God's purpose for the created order. That's still his purpose for the created order today. It is that his creation will be a place of harmony between God, humans, and the environment he has placed them in. Genesis 3 tells us that the human story, though, I mean, that's not very many pages to get through before you find this out, is it? But basically, Genesis 3 tells us the human story is one of disappointment. Humans do not live according to God's purpose for them. And so their relationship with God, with each other, and with the environment he's placed them in, is tainted and mucked up. Prior to human sin, there was harmony in all of those relationships. God could walk in the garden and talk to humans. Humans didn't, animals didn't run away from humans, all those sorts of things. After the fall, those relationships are full of disharmony. The rest of the Bible tells the story of how then God will work in his world to resolve that problem. And the next major event in his purposes is, flip in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. God chooses Abram. And he promises that through Abraham he will bless the world and sort out the problem, basically, that has been created. And to seal the promise, he enters into a covenant with Abraham. Or as he's called then, Abram. Our next major event occurs in the book of Exodus. 
book of Exodus begins with the people of God who are enslaved and persecuted in Egypt. And at their lowest point, they call out to God. And God remembers his covenant that he made with Abram. And through Moses, God rescues his people. And you remember, he, he uh, brings them up out of Egypt. And it's that deliverance that shows them how he's related to them in a very concrete way. He is their God. They are his people. They are bound together in relationship. Now that relationship between God and his people is expressed in another covenant yet again, the Sinai covenant. And like all covenants, this covenant has two sides. God's side, Israel's side. Our next major event in history comes in the book of Joshua. So if you're looking at your headings there, Joshua 23 and 24. After God rescues his people from Egypt, gives them the Sinai covenant, he leads them through the wilderness toward the promised land. In the book of Joshua, they conquer the land. Now, when they conquer the land, they are initially ruled over by people called judges. And the last of those judges is a man called Samuel, a prophet. Now that brings us to our next major context. So if you're looking at the headings now, this is now kingship to Samuel 8. You see, toward the end of his life, the people of God say to Samuel, um, we're not so sure about our form of government, really. Could we have an alternative? And we think the one that is a real winner, because everyone's doing it these days, is kingship. Right? So we would like a king. Could you ask God to give us a king? Uh, Samuel warns them, oh, there are risks with this. But God then says, no, they can have a king. And the first king, Saul, who does not really live as God required kings to live. And God therefore rejects him as king and tells Samuel, I've got someone else, I want you to do appointing of someone else. And the second king is David, the great King David. With David, God, um, if I could put it this way, sows kingship into his great plan for his world. From now on, his plans for his world are tied up with kings. He enters into a covenant with David. The covenant with David is a sort of extension of the previous covenants he'd made with Abraham and with, through Moses at Mount Sinai. And he promises this, that David's descendants will rule God's people forever. Now, the books of Kings and Chronicles tell us how kingship goes. Now, given all that we've seen so far, there's no real surprises in what happens. Kings proved to be as sinful as every other humans that preceded them. And the first expression of that sin is the division of Israel into two. One, two tribes on one end, the other ten on the other. Southern kingdom, northern kingdom, divided largely consists of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, under the rule of a Davidic king, and based at Jerusalem. And the rest, the northern kingdom, becomes known as Israel, and consists of the remaining ten tribes, under the rule of various royal dynasties and key individuals, based at a place called Samaria in the north. Now, the kings of the north become idol worshippers. They turn away from the real and living God, and in the end, they are conquered and destroyed by a group of people called the Assyrians. Sorry for the history, for those of you who don't like history, but we've got to do it so that I make sure that we're on, the common, on, a, on a common page together. Southern Kingdom, and they are done away with largely in 722 
as a, they're conquered and destroyed, basically. The southern kingdom, who has kings, largely from Davidic stock, don't do much better. They engage in idolatry as well. They neglect the warnings the prophets had sent them that if you keep on rebelling against God, it'll have dire consequences. Finally, God sends the nation of Babylon as the agent of his judgment. And Jerusalem is destroyed in 586 BC. And the people lose the land. They're taken off into exile in Babylon. And for many of them who go off to Babylon, they think the promises of Abraham have had it, haven't they? What are we doing here? What's going on? Does God care anymore? But then God sends prophets to them. And those prophets come bringing words of comfort. In fact, one of them says, Comfort, comfort, say to my people, comfort. And he says, My promises stand. I don't go back on them. You may have lost the land, but you can still be my people. Anyway, that last event, the last event I want to turn to is the return and restoration. This is very important. The prophets had promised that God would bring them back after they had gone into exile. After 70 years of punishment, they would come back. And after 70 years had passed, God raised up a king, a foreign king called Cyrus the Persian, and he conquered Babylon and issued an edict that allowed the nation to return back to Israel. They returned. They build the walls of Jerusalem. They engage in reconstruction of the temple. And sadly, the rebuilt temple, reconstructed temple and reconstituted life doesn't seem to measure up. So the people that return, they think, uh, no, it hasn't happened yet. And that, some of you will be grateful for, is where we finish our history lesson. But it's very important that we get there. You see, what we have arrived at is the time of the ministry of the prophet Malachi that we're looking at now. He comes in that time after they've returned to the land. He ministers to this group of disheartened people. He ministers to people who have returned to the land and not seen the promises of God fulfilled in the way they thought. So now let's turn to it. So from here, have your Bibles open at the book of Malachi and we're going to look, we're just going to work our way quickly through it. First thing I want to say is that this book of Malachi is structured in a very special way. Let me show you. Look at Malachi chapter 1 verses 2 to 5. Look at its structure. What happens first? God makes a statement about something or someone. Let me show you. I have loved you, says the Lord, verse 2. There's the statement. I have loved you. Then he tells us that Israel has an objection to God's statement. See it in the second half of verse 2? Israel says, but you ask, how have you loved us? So we've just been in exile. It doesn't look like love to me, they're saying. Then God makes a further response back to them. The response is in verse 2. Can you see it there? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord said, yet I have loved Jacob. In other words, Malachi shows us this dialogue or discussion or argument between God and his people. And as we go through the book, we'll find the whole book is structured around this argument. And these dialogues. But I want to show you more. Look at verse 6. God makes a statement, verse 6. Can you see it there? 
A son, a son honours his father and a servant his master. I'm a father. Where's the honour due to me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due to me? It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my word, by my name. Now, this time, can you see it's moved away from the people and to their religious leaders? And in the second half of the verse, the priests object. They say, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Then in verse 7, God responds back to the priests. You place defiled food on my altar. Can you see what he's saying? He's saying, you people, you say you're, you're with me, but you just find the scraps of meat that are worth nothing and you just put them as sacrifices. You've placed defiled food on my altar. Now this time the dispute goes on a bit longer. God tells us that the priests have another objection. Look at verse 7 there. Can you see it? But you ask, how have we defiled you? They respond back by saying the Lord's table is contemptible. Now if you read all your way through Malachi, you'll see this is the way the book is structured. You see... That's the first bit of background. I want you to grasp it. This book is structured around God and Israel arguing, having a dispute with each other about whether God really is for them or not. They think not. He thinks yes. Second bit of background has to do with covenants and love. Now, I'm sorry we have to do all of this work up front, but unless we do this, we won't really understand the rest of the book. Look at verse 2, chapter 1. God says, I have loved you. Now in Hebrew, the word love is a bit like our word love. Uh, it sounds very different, but it's a bit like, it can be used for sexual love. Or for the emotion of love. Or for family love, or what friends have for each other. But when it's linked with covenants, it has this very special meaning. Let me tell you about it. It's used many times in the book of Deuteronomy. And I want to show you two of the times it's used. Flipping your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 37. And I'll wait for you to find it. Deuteronomy 4, verse 37. This is really in the deep end. I need to warn you today. But we'll get there. Look at what it says. Deuteronomy 4, 37. Because he loved your forefathers and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength. What does love mean if that's how God is describing the relationship? It means choosing. God loves his people by choosing them above every other nation on earth. Love's not an emotion here, it's an act of choice, isn't it? God chooses Israel instead of someone else. Now turn to chapter 7, verse 8 of Deuteronomy. This time Moses says, Because, But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What's love there? Love says, I love you so much, I kept my word to you. And I rescued you. So it's about loyalty and faithfulness. Now I think both of those senses of the word are there in Malachi chapter 1. Look at Malachi 1 verse 1. God's saying, I have chosen Israel. I have been faithful to the relationship 
we created together. And the people of God are saying, you have not been faithful or loyal with us. You might say you have, but you're not acting like it. Here we are back from exile. Things are no better. We can see this and we say, how or in what ways have you loved us? This is potent stuff to be saying to God, isn't it? Let me give you an example by talking about my marriage with Heather. Remember, I chose Heather above every other woman on earth. I haven't changed my mind. I chose her. <coughs> she chose me as well. I entered into a covenant relationship with her. And when I did, I made promises to her. I promised I would remain her husband for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, and she did the same thing back to me. I promised that I would love and cherish her as long as we both live. Now imagine, imagine this, that she became sick. Very sick. Or imagine, it's not true, but imagine she couldn't bear children. And I said, ah, oh, alright, that's it. I'm out of here. I'm leaving this relationship because you haven't lived up to what I thought you would do. But friends, I promised that I would love and cherish her. Or imagine she, like I said, couldn't bear children. And she could respond back and say this, couldn't she? Andrew, if you leave me over this issue, then you don't love me. You don't love me. What she really means is, Andrew, you're not really being faithful to me and loyal to the promises you made to me, which had none of these caveats. You're not sticking with an agreement we made in public before our, our friends and relatives. Our agreement was that you would stick with me in sickness and in health. You said those words to me. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is what the Hebrew word here means. This is our second, our next bit of background. God is saying, I have been faithful. I have loved you, Israel. And Israel's pushing back and saying, no, you haven't. You've not loved your people. Now let's look at the third bit of background. The first few verses of Malachi talk about Isaac and Esau. Can you see them there? Now, in order to understand them, we need to understand a bit more history. I'm sorry we're delving into this today, but unless we understand this, we won't understand the rest of the book. Travel back in the book of Genesis. Perhaps you remember the story. Abram and Sarah have a son. Do you remember his name? Isaac. Isaac is married to Rebecca. Rebecca gives birth to twins. Firstborn is called Esau. He's known as, what's his other name? Edom. The nation of Edom is descended from him. Second son that was born is Jacob. Later in life, he, he was given another name by God. Do you remember what that was? Israel. And the nation of Israel is descended from him. Now, as you read the story of Jacob and Esau in Genesis 25 to 27, it becomes clear that God had chosen Jacob, not Esau. 
and the nations that grew from those two people, two guys struggled against each other, as you could imagine, couldn't you? In fact, when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, do you know what happened? You know, the Babylonians, they come in, they destroy, and do you know what the Edomites do? They stand on the edges and mock. They say, <laughs> you've been waiting for this. It's been happening. It's been coming. First, have to next bit of background. Edom is descended from Esau, and the history of the relationship between the two brothers is grim. So, what is this about? Why do I tell you all of this? If we've looked at all of this background, we can understand what's happening here in our passage for today. Imagine the setting: Israelites in exile. Some of the people seem to indicate. Some of the prophets seem to indicate that when they came back, the land. Everything would be great again. They'd have paid their price in exile. And God would bless them. He would dwell among them. But the blessings never arrived. They arrived back in their land and it was grim. And people begin began to say to each other, oh, you cannot trust God. He's like an unfaithful husband. He deserted the wife of his youth and he doesn't care less anymore. He hasn't kept his word. That's what the debate is about here. God says, I have loved you. And Israel says, how have you loved us? Come on, prove it. And that's what God does in verse 3. Have a look at it. He reminds his people they have a brother nation, Esau and e or Edom. And he says, compare your situation with that of Edom. As God's elect people, they may, you may have been punished in exile, but it's not the end for you. I preserved you in exile, and I brought you back from Israel into the land, and I restored the land as I promised I would. I have loved you and been faithful to you when you had only been unfaithful to me. I showed faithfulness and loyalty. Now, compare, if you don't believe that, compare it with Edom. I've judged Edom as well. But I haven't given them back their land. The mountainous land that they boasted in has become now a waste. It's empty except for desert jackals. The Edomites may attempt to return and rebuild this fort, but God will stop such a venture. There was an end to God's judgment of Israel, but there will not be an end to God's judgment of Edom. That's verses 4 and 5. Friends, this is really tough stuff, isn't it? In other words, God has clearly loved Israel, but in comparison, hated Edom. Now, that's over the top to say that, but can you see what the comparison is in the people's mind? Now, you've done very well, because this has been the trickiest introduction that of any sermon I just about have done. It's very hard because you have to understand so much history. But let's think about how this passage applies to us. I hope you can see it. I think there are some clear parallels between the ancient people of God and us. This ancient people spoken to in the book of Malachi and us. Let me explain. First, we are people God has loved. If you are Christians here today, then God has loved you. 
so much that he sent his son into the world. If we are Christians, we have received that love. We have entered into relationship with him. We are the loved children of God. If you're here tonight as a believer of Jesus, that's who you are. The loved person of God. Second, we are therefore people in covenant relationship with God. God has chosen us in Christ. God has demonstrated his great love toward us in sending his son into the world to die for our sin. And Jesus made this clear. Do you remember when he celebrated the Lord's Supper just before he died? In Luke 22 verse 20, do you remember what he said? He said this, This is my new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. In other words, I have brought, bought relationship with you, paid for it by what I've done. You are in relationship with me. It's been costly. So we're in covenant relationship with God if we're a believer in Jesus and cling to him. Now remember what I said about covenants? Covenants have two sides. On one side they tell us, God's for you. I was, he will stick by you. He will love you. Love us. In that he will be loyal to us. That's the great blessing of being in covenant with God. The great encouragement Israel was to take away from Malachi's words here in the book of Malachi. A great encouragement that we should take away from Malachi. If we are believers in Jesus, God has loved us with a love unknown any other love in this world. Unlike any other love in this world. God loves us. God is for us. God will be faithful to us. He loved us so much that he sent his son to die that we might not need to. But there's another side. The other side is that we are called to love him. We are called to be faithful to him. To be loyal to him. And you know what? And if we're not, he will judge us. The history of God's people knows this. God's people did not keep his commandments and he sent them into exile. Oh, he did punish them, but he rescued them as well. But do you know what, friends? Lots of people I know in contemporary Christian faith think that being in relationship with God is all about blessing. It's not. Being in relationship with God demands that you relate to God. <laughs> that you respond in love to his love, that you obey him, that you are faithful to him. And if you do not, do you know what the Old Testament warns us? It may be that God may need to judge you as he judged his ancient people, Israel. So beware, relationship with God has two sides. Two sides. It has a promise of great Great, 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 unbelievable blessing. God loves you. But it also, let me tell you, holds a threat of judgment if you don't love God back. Please listen closely and learn. It's not a message heard very often in the church today, but it should be. God has loved you with an extraordinary love. 
He has sent His Son. His Son died for your sin in your place. This is His great act in the world. And He calls for a response. If you've received that gift, God expects for you to have a shift in your behaviour. The gift demands change. It demands shift. Your belief marks you out as a child of God. But it also demands a shift in behaviour. Do you remember it in the New Testament? John's the greatest one for it. The Apostle John. Love as you have been loved. Love as you have been loved. Live as one who knows the great gift God has given in his son. Respond to God, to the world, to each other, as Christ's great gifted children. Recipients of grace in Christ. And then, this is who you are in Christ. So, friends... If this is who you are, then be who you are in the way that you live. Love as you have been loved. Love as you have been loved for the love displayed towards you has been the greatest love displayed by a human to another human in all eternity. Love as you have been loved. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your great grace in your world in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that though we were sinners, as we received the gift of your love displayed in Christ, the forgiveness available in him, we became right with you. Please help us to love even as you have loved us. And Father, we pray that you'd help us start even this time away with each other. Help us in even the smallest of things that we do this weekend to love each other even as you have loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.